Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community. I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with reactions to Governor Hochul's State of the State. First, Mark Dunley gets New York State Drug Policy Alliance's reaction to the plan for substance use, treatment, education, and prevention. Then I talked to NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, New York State, to react to the $1 billion plan for mental health care. After that, Andrea Cunliffe speaks with the Alzheimer's Association about their work. After that, Bria Barthel brings us January book suggestions from the Troy Public Library. And finally, we speak with Robert Cooper, a local photographer and creator of the vlog, The Gallery. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that a report released by a governmental advisory group suggests the 700,000-acre Catskill Park must be managed more intensively to deal with the deluge of new visitors since the beginning of the pandemic. Visitation to the park has doubled between 2018 and 2021. Spark of Hudson has donated $1.2 million to pay off the debt owned owed to Columbia Memorial Health Hospital by more than 1,100 individuals. That represents almost a fifth of the city's residents. Despite spending far more money on health care than other industrial countries, the U.S. remains the main industrial country that does not provide government-guaranteed universal health care. The New York Immigration Coalition wants New York to become the first state in the nation to ensure immigrants have a lawyer when facing deportation hearings. That proposal was missing from Governor Hochul's recently announced agenda for refugees, which includes increased funding for shelter and employment assistance for individuals seeking asylum. The Gazette reports that Marva Isaacs, the Hamilton Hill Neighborhood Association president, will run for city council as a Democrat. She says she wants a legislative independent to legislate independently from all Democratic council, which is divided between a progressive wing of color and white wing of an and a white wing of moderates. The fractions have fought over police overtime, COVID-19, relief spending, and accusations of racism. The record reports that the State Department of Environmental Conservation has approved a report recommending the Superfund cleanup of the former Admiral Cleaners on 19th Street and Waterville. That's it for the headlines. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. Now, in Tuesday's State of the State Address, Governor Hochul stated her commitment to make substantial and substance use use treatment 
education, and prevention a priority, including recognizing the need to keep people out of jails and prisons. One notable absence from her plan is the funding and expansion of overdose prevention centers. Tony Smith-Thompson, director of the New York State Drug Policy Alliance, discusses the issue with Mark Dunley. We're joined by Tony Smith-Thompson, who's a director of the New York State Office for the uh, Drug Policy Alliance. On Tuesday of this week, Governor, Governor Kathy Hochul delivered her uh, annual State of the State address, laying out the priorities uh, for the coming year. And we've asked Tony to come on to address some of the uh, issues that uh, the governor raised and didn't raise with respect um, to uh, drug policy uh, treatment and, and other issues. So, so Tony, what were some of the things that you were encouraged to hear the governor talking about on Tuesday? Well, I think going into the state of the state, we knew she was going to focus on uh, public safety and we knew she was going to focus on housing. And so we were looking to see what she was going to say, whether she was going to mention anything specifically regarding the opioid, um, the overdose crisis. And we knew that it would probably be covered in the book. We didn't know if she would mention it in her remarks, which she did. So it's good to know that it's on her radar enough that she is addressing it in her remarks. Um, and, and I think it also fell short. Now, I, I did read an article earlier this week that uh, I guess a lot of the overdose tests, I guess uh, over 700, close to 700 in the last year, uh, many is that is due to the fentanyl issue. Has the governor put forth the type of steps that we need to deal with that, that issue and other related issues? I think what was concerning in her remarks today and in the book is that it, with regard to fentanyl and the drug supply, that she's calling for increased criminal penalties to address fentanyl, calling for increased law enforcement measures to kind of increase crackdowns on the fentanyl, fentanyl in the supply, and also proposing to schedule additional substances in the controlled substances list. And we don't need more criminalization. We don't need more criminal penalties. That's what got us here where we are today, war on drugs policy is what is helping to drive the um, adulterated drug, drug supply. Now, I understand one of the issues that advocates have been looking at is, uh, you know, support for the idea for a safe place where, where people can, can, can use it. You know, why is that a good idea and why hasn't the state sort of embraced that concept yet? That's a great question. We were really hoping and looking to see whether she would finally come around to supporting overdose prevention centers. We uh, know that the first and only two in the country are here in New York, specifically in New York City. They have been open solely with private funding and are struggling to stay open without the government's um, funding support. And to be a bold leader, as New York says it is, it needs to put money behind these interventions that are life-saving. They've intervened in nearly 700 overdoses in just over a year. And this is really important. I mean, I think one of the things that is encouraging is that in the state of the state, Hochul, Governor Hochul did um, state her intention to increase access to drug checking, checking technology 
which is good. But I think at this point, we know that most of the supply has fentanyl in it. So it's really not a question of whether there is fentanyl in the supply, but how much, what else is in it and what people can do with that information. And from the time that I've spent at On Point NYC, which runs the overdose prevention centers, some of the ways that people are using the information that they have when they're able to test their drugs is they're able to use their um, they're able to use their supply safely in the consumption space um, and be monitored while they're using. And so, if the if the supply has a certain percentage of fentanyl, people may choose to use less of the supply than they normally would have. But even that is um, it's uncertain, and so people are not sure how their body may react. And it's really important for people to have a safe space where they are monitored, where they're receiving compassionate care. Because just knowing what's in the supply, that's a really good part of it. But without a safe place to use, people are still at risk of fatally overdosing. Yeah, I know in my own uh, community, uh, quite a few, actually, um, of my uh, son who attended a local high school, sort of a rural suburban community, uh, have overdosed. Um, one of them in the bathroom at the uh, local steward's convenience store. And so when you talk about you know, increase in criminal penalties, that doesn't seem to really respond to the present situation. And aren't a lot of the drug companies also being held financially liable for actually, you know, peddling this and, and really spreading around, particularly opioids? Yeah, New York State has a pot of about $2 billion now in opioid settlement funds. And these funds... Oh, these funds are the result of people dying. And it's really important to remember that. And the purpose of the funds is specifically to stop people from dying, to support people who are struggling with substance use. And that means taking the boldest action we know how to take in order to really repair to the extent we can the harms of the opioid crisis, right? Um, and so that's what that money is for. It's a specific pot of money to intervene, to support people. And we need to be using that money um, for, that, for those purposes, including funding overdose prevention centers, which they can. Now, are other states beginning to to wake up more to the need to take, uh, you know, I guess, more aggressive um, remedial efforts? Or, or is, you know, New York sort of common in terms of how states are responding to the situation? No, other states are beginning to are looking at ways to do just that. There are other states looking to use settlement funds for exactly this purpose. And um, if New York wants to remain a leader, uh, it needs to take bolder action, right? New York is going to fall behind. Now, I know that the um, head of the uh, health department uh, has been, been uh, is departed if she's not already left. Um, has, you know, as, as part of that process in terms of finding that replacement, is that going to be one of the issues that, for instance, senators you know, question them about, about what their policies are, you know, it's just, well, you know, what can the state legislature do at this point to, to step in to push the whole administration more? Well, one thing the legislature can do, and we will be pushing for the legislature to do this session, is to pass the Safer Consumption Services Act. And so the legislature does have the ability to pass legislation to authorize overdose prevention centers um, across the state so that existing organizations that provide certain harm reduction services can expand to offer this additional service. So that's one thing that the legislature can do. 
And Governor Hochul can act on her own as well, which is what we are calling on her to do, right? To declare a public health crisis, which is what we're in, to make a pathway to authorize and fund overdose prevention centers. Uh, are there other issues that the uh, Drug Policy Alliance is looking to see both the legislature and, and the governor move forward uh, in this new legislative session? We're definitely um, going to be monitoring or interested to um, interested to make sure that we're continuing as a state to move away from criminalizing people who use drugs and continuing to uh, implement measures that keep people out of the carceral system altogether, right? To really reduce contact with the carceral system, reduce contact with law enforcement. It was mentioned a little bit in the governor's state of state of the state uh, address um, in, book, in the book specifically to kind of increase funding on certain alternatives to incarceration measures. It's not enough. And sometimes diversion programs, um, fall short because they're temporary and because people have to have contact with the criminal legal system in order to access those services. So we're really looking for ways like overdose prevention centers and similar other similar interventions where people can get support without having to have any contact with the criminal legal system and really addressing substance use as a public health issue because that's what it is. So we have about a minute left. We've been talking with um... Tony Smith-Thompson, director of the New York State Office for the Drug Policy Alliance. If the listeners want to get more information, if they want to contact the, the governor or lawmakers, how can they you know, inform themselves about this issue and how to help you know, try to solve it? You can certainly follow us, underscore DP, DPA underscore NY. Uh, follow us on Twitter to see the latest on our efforts around the overdose prevention centers and getting them authorized and funded. You can certainly go on our primary website as well, drugpolicy.org, for the um, full breadth of the work that we're doing across the country. Well, thank you very much for taking the time with us today. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. On Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we've had quite a few stories on on understanding the state of the state by Governor Hochul, and we'll now have another story. Yes, another aspect from Tuesday's State of the State Address was the commitment to mental health care, which included commitments to 1,000 more inpatient beds and 3,500 new housing units and improved systemic accountability. Governor Kathy Hochul announced a $1 billion, quote, comprehensive plan to fix New York State's continuum of mental health care, end quote, in her State of the State address on Tuesday. To help unpack this plan, I'm now joined by Matthew Shapiro, Senior Director at Nas National Alliance on Mental Illness, New York State, NAMI. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. It's so great to be back. Great. So could you give us like a brief overview and then we'll dive into some of the specifics in this plan? Definitely. We were, so, we're very excited about this plan and, and the fact that it really is a plan, which that kind of sounds funny. But, you know, we're really excited that the governor um, has really marketed this as a continuum of care and, and, a, and a mental health system because we have argued for so long. We don't really have a mental health system. We kind of have a patchwork system of disjointed services and supports that aren't linked and aren't uh, really 
you know, joined in a system. So to see that, um, that goal is very, very exciting. And just to see mental health, given the type of priority that Governor Hochul gave it, is so exciting. I've been with NAMI for 15 years, and I've never seen mental health discussed that way in the state of the state address. So that was very, very exciting as well. Oh, that's great. Often some of some of the um, lawmakers tend to give these blanket kind of addresses to issues such as mental health without really understanding the deeper issues and, and the chain of what leads people to have healthy solutions. So you feel like this is some, uh, the, these are good solutions being offered. Definitely. You know, it's so funny when I was reading the State of the State book, I, I turned to my wife and I said, I feel like I wrote like 75% of this because it's all things that have been in our advocacy memos and our testimony. It's arguments that have really been the tenets of our advocacy message for so long now. And really, you know, for so long, our main message is that we need to expand access to mental health services. And that starts by really creating a mental health system that creates a continuum of care. You know, for too long, the um, the state has taken from one system, usually the hospital system, uh, to pay for community uh, services. Basically, for every bed that was eliminated out of the state psychiatric hospital system, they invested $100,000 into community services, which, of course, those investments were necessary, but you're really robbing Peter to pay Paul, and, and that's not expanding access. So, to see an aggressive plan that really has concrete uh, ways to address both the inpatient and community-based services and really can create a continuum of care and other critical things that we've argued for, including um, better discharge planning and better uh, admitted planning and, and connecting people with services when they get come out of the hospital. So. You know, it's it's not, as you said before, kind of a big uh, 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 pr uh, promise. It's really a pretty, a lot of these plans are pretty concrete, and we're really excited about where they're going. Great. So let's start with the inpatient care. What are you excited about in this plan, and what does it include? Sure. Now, before I even get to that, I just want to say that, you know, when we talk about hospitals, I think there's a lot of misconceptions, especially with psychiatric hospitals. We In no way are we arguing that we we need to go back to asylums or, you know, housing people with mental illness, lock them away and throw away the key. We know there have been so many problems with that, but hospitals are an important part of a continuum of care. You know, if someone needs an acute, uh, you know, acute services to a treat a, a serious psychiatric issue, hospitals are the only ones that can provide that. And too many New Yorkers have struggled to, uh, to find inpatient care. Often we, we hear stories of people trying to access, you know, going into a psychiatric emergency room here in Albany County or Rensselaer County, and they they wait for three days and a bed isn't available in the community, and they end up in Westchester or Binghamton, away from their families, away from their support. So that's very concerning. So what this plan will do is one of the main things that have kept uh, uh, psychiatric beds low is that Medicaid doesn't reimburse at the same amount as uh, for psychiatric issues as they do for physical issues. So one of the things the governor is trying to do is increase the Medicaid reimbursement for psychiatric beds, which will hopefully get more beds online, and really hold hospitals accountable in fining them for not putting beds back online. So her goal 
between adding beds into the public, the, the office of mental health hospital system, and the private hospital system is to add a thousand beds across New York State, which are desperately needed. And how is the community need addressed in this plan? Sure. So uh, in a very wide array of of programs, uh, things like uh, assertive community treatment teams that meet people where they are, um, which, you know, Albany County and Rensselaer County do have examples of that, Uh, creating more crisis stabilization services. I think we've discussed that before, you know, having alternatives to emergency rooms in the community that are better designed to meet the needs of people who are in a psychiatric emergency, which are different than physical emergencies. And of course, one of the things that we're most excited to see is serious investments in mental health housing programs with wraparound services. I mentioned earlier how we never want to go back to asylums. We know that recovery can happen best in the community. If you give people not only a safe place to live that they can call their own, but provide them the basic you know, supports that they need to advance their recovery, getting them to doctor's appointments, making sure they adhere to their medicine, and these type of programs, they're graduate, so people advance up towards more independence and really seeing um, investments that the governor hopes to create 3,500 new units of this type of housing. Very, very exciting. But I do want to temper our excitement with one thing. The, the, the one thing that we don't see in the state of the state or that's not mentioned yet is how we're going to take care of our mental health and behavioral health workforce because... Without the dedicated and caring workers that execute these programs, they're the foundation for what what access is built upon. So there's been a real uh, problem maintaining and sustaining workers because the salaries aren't what they should be, which is why we're fighting for an 8.5 cost of living adjustment for mental health workers or behavioral health workers, people who do both mental health and substance use work, um, as well as other investments to, to stabilize this sector because in some ways you're putting the cart before the horse a little bit by investing in the programs, but not investing in the staff to execute the programs. Could that result in an incoming group of professionals who are not well trained in handling the situations they have at hand? Well, not that they're well trained. I I think part of what you see is uh, when you get a lot of turnover in these cases like you know a continuity of care is so important to recovery when you know when you're someone who's living with a mental illness even a more serious mental illness and you have a caseworker it takes time to build trust with between your you and your caseworker learn for the caseworker to learn how to communicate i mean it's like any, even you know when you have a relationship with a therapist that takes time to build and, and to grow and if your your case managers and your therapists are keep changing it's very hard to create the type of relationships that are needed to best drive recovery. And due to the situation right now, there's a large turnover of home care workers. Yeah, mental health programs are having a really tough time maintaining their staff because they're not compensated properly. And and the work that they do is very demanding. It's, you know, a lot of these jobs can be 24, you know, they're around the clock. Uh, You know, they're not nine to five jobs. They're difficult. And not only do you have to be very expert and skilled in these jobs, but you really have to be compassionate and caring. And finding those type of people are difficult and and keeping them and sustaining them is even more challenging. But they are, like I say, the foundation to which services are built. So without people to deliver the services, services are really impossible. 
Now we're quickly running out of time. We only have about a minute left. We haven't even touched on that there's expanding mental health services for school-aged children. You did mention the lack of support for the workforce in this field. What else would you, uh, and maybe NAMI, if you can speak from NAMI, what would you do differently in this plan if you had had $1 billion? Well, you know, maybe the one thing where we don't see the type of investments besides the workforce, and we talked about this the last time I was on was a little bit, is more programs to improve the criminal justice mental illness interface and how to improve uh, interactions between police and people living with a mental illness and, and create better outcomes uh, from the criminal justice system. So New York has made a lot of advances last year on that, but we want to make sure we continue in, in that direction as well because it's so important and the criminal justice system can be a driver for recovery if used correctly. So with this plan in place, do you feel like there can be a push for further uh, movement? That would be great. Yeah, so there definitely could be legislation that can strengthen that, but the investments that we see are very, very strong. And, and uh, again, you mentioned the kids one. Those are the ones that are a little less defined right now. We're going to have to see what that looks like a little bit. So we didn't get to talk about that one as much, maybe when I come back. But we are, by and large, very excited about these investments. Thank you so much for joining us, Matthew Shapiro on Hudson uh, Mohawk Thank Magazine. you, for, as always, for having me. Matthew Shapiro and Nami are reoccurring guests on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So we will be continuing that conversation in their next visit, which I think is scheduled for early March. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Andrea Cunliffe. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Now, Katie Keery of the Alzheimer's Association spoke with Andrea Cunliffe and removed some of the questions around Alzheimer's in this conversation. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for inviting me. My name is Katie Keery. I am the program manager for Rensselaer, Columbia, and Greene Counties for the local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. How did you find yourself in that position? Yeah, so actually it was pretty um, pretty early outside of getting my undergrad. I got my undergrad at SUNY Oneonta in communication studies and psychology. I knew I wanted to do something educational, but I wasn't really sure exactly what. And then this bittersweet experience. It was a, a bitter experience, but it turned out that something good came from it. My grandmother, unfortunately, had Alzheimer's disease, and her mother also had it. So it runs in my family. And right before I graduated from Oneonta, she passed away. My dad started getting more involved with the Alzheimer's Association, because then he got very close with them. And he said, Kate, you know, they're looking for another program manager to present a local education. And I know you're all about local support and education and yada, yada. So I said, yeah. So I interviewed for the position. I, so I've been with them for four and a half years now. Alzheimer's. Just give me an idea of 
what Alzheimer's actually does to the behavior of someone you love very much, or even someone you know, or someone you're associated with? What happens to that relationship? Absolutely. One thing we always like to say at the association is, if you've met one person with Alzheimer's, you've met one person. This disease is very unique to each individual. There are some general symptoms that uh, usually show that someone's having some cognitive impairment, some type of dementia. However, every person has very specific, very unique experience. For example, somebody with this disease may have a very difficult time with language. They may not be able to put the word that's supposed to be in a sentence in the right place. They might have difficulty understanding what you're saying to them. Now that over time, because this disease is progressive disease, it becomes worse. And that person who's having difficulty with language ultimately will probably not be able to speak. So it's very scary to a lot of people. However, that's not a symptom for everybody person next to that person with the disease, they might have behavioral symptoms. So they might not be able to really control their actions. They have an impulse issue. They might say very vulgar things that they would have never said before they had this diagnosis. I'm telling you, some wild things came out of my grandmother's mouth. And it is one of those things where you have to learn to laugh. So everybody experiences this, this disease very differently. But we do have the 10 warning signs. Person doesn't have to have all 10 signs to be concerned. It could be just two. And the thing that differentiates a person who's just having some forgetfulness versus a person who might have Alzheimer's is consistency. It's starting to affect their everyday functioning. It is out of the ordinary for them. So somebody that always had some issues with keeping organized in certain ways, that wouldn't be a warning sign. You know, that wouldn't be something that would concern people. A person that was always super, super meticulous, and then all of a sudden starting to misplace things, you know, starting to hoard things, that can be a symptom. All of those things, that might be a, a consideration that people think about. You know, this is different than who she usually is. So that's something we always say, is this out of the ordinary for that person? Is it starting to affect their everyday life and perhaps their safety? Speaking of safety, I mean, how dangerous is it? Yeah, so it's definitely on a spectrum. But we really encourage people, the minute that they start seeing signs uh, in somebody or even themselves, to approach either us at the association or approach a specialist, which we oftentimes connect people with a specialist, a neurologist. Because getting this diagnosis, yes, it's scary, but what's going to happen no matter what, if you have this disease, it's going to become more dangerous. Their vision, the, the way that we perceive what we're seeing can change with this disease. So that's why driving becomes dangerous. Balance can become an issue. So falling and getting hurt, not being in your best judgment. So uh, people with this disease are at a much higher risk of scams, uh, giving away money to people that they shouldn't be. So their life savings could be at risk. Being able to plan for the future. We know that being able to pay for long-term care, it ain't easy. (laughs) So you want to know that I have a plan set before this becomes so progressed that I don't have a choice any longer. I'm just, you know, you want to be able to say, I have still a say in my my life, and this is what I want to happen. So let's document it now. Let's say you have someone that you know who you're beginning to think is like losing it, vulnerable. Are they aware? Good question. So... That also varies. This is the challenge with Alzheimer's and any type of dementia, to be honest. 
it's a very gray disease. And by that, I mean, some people, they are very aware in the beginning. They might see signs, they might be in denial, and they are shutting people out. Some people, that lack of awareness takes over, and they truly don't know that things are changing. And as the disease progresses, that will no longer be if them. No people with this disease will be able to recognize that they have this disease. So in the, I'll tell you, my grandmother, she recognized it in herself. She hadn't told any of us yet. So she knew what was happening because she cared for her mother at home. But yes, some people are aware and some people they're, they're saying, you know, I want to do whatever's safest for everybody. But some people, they really don't know. And that can be hard for people around them to accept. If you have an immediate family member, so it does increase your risk for developing the disease. So my dad's risk is increased. If my dad were to develop this disease, my risk would also be increased. If you have more than one immediate family member, that also it increases it even more. However, I've worked with people that have had no family ties that they know of to this disease, and they have developed it. I have known people who have had many family ties, and they've, they never developed the disease. And one thing we also know from research is that changes are happening to the brain 10 to 20 years before we even see the signs outwardly in people. Early detection is so important because the earlier you catch it, the better we can give you certain treatments for it, the better you can live a quality life and plan. All of these things can help. You know, it doesn't cure it, but it helps. And that's why we, we really encourage people to talk to people like us or other specialists in this field because we want to calm people's nerves, but we also want to educate people. Age is the biggest risk factor for this disease. And we all age. So we are all at risk. So younger onset, People in their 40s and 50s can develop this disease. We have worked with people and we still work with people who have any type of dementia that's younger onset. We're not sure how Alzheimer's begins. We do know that there are what we call plaques and tangles, different types of proteins that build up in the brain. That's kind of like, I like to explain it. This is how my boss explained it to me one of the first days I started there. When you have plaque between your teeth. You have to floss. You have to keep them fresh or else your teeth are going to decay. You're going to have problems. All of those things. A tooth could die. Plaque is building up in these people. And we all have that buildup at some point. However, for some people, and this is they're not sure why it's happening in some and not others. The buildup is causing deterioration in brain tissue. And we see that what we call shrinkage of the brain because of these plaques and tangles. So that is what ultimately causes the confusion, the short-term memory loss, and it goes throughout the brain. So how do we floss our brains? This is what hundreds of researchers are trying to figure out. How can we either prevent this plaque buildup before it even starts, or how can we cure it? We don't know what the cure is yet. There are some pretty amazing treatments that have come out recently that have been showing to actually slow the progression, which has never happened before. Oh, so, brilliant. Yes, lecanemab. Okay. So that is the treatment that has been approved by the FDA. However, it is still in those infant stages of discussion. So I can't share as much. What I do know is that it was approved. It was put through a speedier trial because it was showing great you know, result. However, it's kind of like the other treatments in the sense that it's not going to work for everybody. 
It's not going to work for people in all stages, but this is the closest we've ever been before. And it's why we are cheering from the sidelines at the association, really pushing for more of this research, hoping that ultimately it will be funded. So regular schmegular people like us will be able to. So what can we do in the meantime, stuff that can be done? Is there some way we can make a difference? Absolutely. So the first thing I would say is there are things that can lower your risk. It's not something that prevents it, you know, but there are measures you can take that would lower your risk. The number one thing is physical exercise. Getting that heart rate up. You want that blood and oxygen flow, heart pumping. The second thing, healthy eating. So having a nutritious diet, those lean meats, leafy greens, berries, all of those types of things. And I would definitely encourage people to talk to their doctor about what's the best diet for them. Uh, Social engagement, huge. So social engagement, we all need it. And I think that the pandemic taught us that 100%, how important it is for our mental health. But people with this disease especially, if they are lacking that social engagement, oftentimes they are. Social engagement, when people don't have it with this disease, you often see a drastic decline. And then finally, cognitive challenges. Challenging your brain. It could simply be having a a difficult conversation, learning new things. This is new to you. This is challenging your brain. It can be specific as learning a new instrument or a new language to reading about some new treatment for Alzheimer's. Big question we always get is about different supplements. Now, all I say is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Really lean on your doctors. And if your doctor doesn't feel sure, ask them uh, for advice. You know, who could they direct them to, to give that advice? So we say everybody over the age of 65 has that um, annual wellness exam free to them. So really utilize it. Get that cognitive exam done just so you can relieve yourself from that stress or find out what you need to do next. This has been Andrea Kumla for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, speaking with Katie Carey of the Alzheimer's Association, Northeastern New York Chapter. And at 10 a.m. on January 26th, Katie will be at the Troy YMCA with a presentation to give some practical information and answer some questions about Alzheimer's. So many of us want to include reading more in our New Year's resolutions. We just heard learning new things is good. Maybe this is part of it. And if you're looking for new book suggestions, Bria Barthel has your back. And she's headed to the Troy Public Library, as she does every month. This is Bria Barthel at Troy Public Library talking with Ian Houck, head of Adult Services and Reference Services. And he's got some great books to recommend for January. Ian, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. And let's get started. What's the first one? So the first one is The Woman in the Library by Solari Gentile. It is a closed table mystery inside of a closed room mystery. Four strangers are all sitting at a table in the Boston Public Library when what should happen but a woman yells out and seems to have been murdered. So while they are waiting to be released from the room, the four strangers begin to talk to each other and reveal their own stories. Now this being a murder mystery set in a closed room, it has all the tropes we're used to including the idea that do we trust the narrator to actually give us the full picture of the story as the characters reveal themselves, or are they themselves involved in the murder somehow? 
Somehow the story of a woman killed in a library has me looking around a little nervous here. You haven't had any recent murders at Troy Public Library, have you? Oh, no problems here. Uh, Just uh, the occasional ghost, but every library has one of those. Okay, the occasional ghost, moving along. And that leads to the title of the next book. Yes, so the next book is a new nonfiction book we have called All the Living and the Dead, From Embalmers to Executioners, The Exploration of the People Who Have Made Death Their Life's Work by Haley Campbell. Long title, I know. But what the author explored in this uh, book is what are the professions, but also the people in those professions that work with the dead in our lives. Um, Death is something that most people would not bring up on a daily basis, and some might avoid altogether. But she interviews um, a former executioner, an embalmer, a gravedigger to ask the questions none of us would, such as, if you could pick your own gravesite in this uh, in this grave, what would you do? And she talks to the gravediggers about that. And she also talks to other professionals, um, including one, Terry, who she asked a very interesting question, such as he was a funeral director, and he talked about what it's like as someone who is a professional to pick up someone you know personally to handle their funeral or even just from the crime scene, and which is a deep question that I had never thought to consider. And he talks about how he was able to settle his emotions and handle that situation to pick up his own friend and has now moved on to work in another organization where people can donate their bodies to science to help in future medical research. Somehow the book by Mary Roach about... um dead people and bodies, how the, how bodies are used for medical research comes to mind. I'm a little concerned about your mental state, given that you've picked one about um, uh, murder and one about living and dead. You doing okay there, Ian? I'm doing all right. I uh, live with a PhD criminologist, so mysteries and uh, stories of murder are always around me. <laughs> okay, and now we're moving from murder to a couple of manga stories. So tell us about those. Yeah. So the first is My Wandering Warrior Existence by Nagata Kabi. This is actually an autobiographical manga that the author has put out. And it is the fifth in a series that she has written. And she is telling you just about um, their life. She has a lot of trouble and a lot of questions that she still has in life, um, including how to handle her own depression and loneliness. Uh, what is what is romantic love versus the love you have for a friend? And what would it be like to wear a wedding dress? What she finds out by finding a photo studio that will allow her to come in and pose for wedding photos without actually having a wedding. Sounds very interesting. Ooh, I'm looking at the book, and it's got some pink backgrounds and pretty wide-open pictures. Tell us a little bit about the uh, art in the book. The art style is um, very unique to her style. It is only—the only three colors you will see will be black outlines, white backgrounds, and pink accent pieces. And she draws herself in a fairly comedic style to have a lot of different— facial expressions uh, as she explores her story to either the eyes widening when she's shocked or um, zoning out to her mouth becoming small when she's lost the idea of what to say. 
Terrific. And the next book, continuing on with the what seems to be sort of violence and sadness theme. This is the um, the series book one of Chainsaw Man by Tatsuki Fujimoto. Um, this is a fairly popular series in the manga reading and anime community right now. Um, it is about the character J- Denji, who is uh, taken in by the Public Safety Division, Special Division 4, to hunt down demons uh, to save the populace. The issue with Denji is he actually has his own power to produce chainsaws from his forearms and head to use as weapons against the demons um, as he and his uh, teammates fight the demons to stop them from harming communities and taking over the world. Those all sound very interesting, and listeners, I do want to reassure you that uh, Ian seems like a pretty nice, easygoing guy, despite the selections for this year. Since it is the new year, let's look back at uh, the past year. I know you haven't been here for the whole year, but what are some of the books that were most popular? Um, Towards the end of the year, the Book Haters Book Club uh, was on... Um, a lot of people's requests list um, because obviously Book Haters Book Club, it's a title when you see it, you have to book it up as a book lover. And inside the book itself comes even more book recommendations. So that has been popular. Um, And then uh, surprisingly, a book called the North North American Guide to Spiders. Um, It is a a field guide to spiders across uh, North America, and um, I've seen children and adults uh, alike take it out um, to both, I guess, see the pictures and to learn about spiders in North America. And have you had any interesting reference questions recently? Um, one that um, does come to mind is about the cultural diffusion of using farming techniques in the early 1500s that migrated from southern France to northern France. And I had to look (laughs) in to see how that moved on and how the climate affected that. Um, Wait, that wasn't covered in your library sciences classes for some reason? I didn't take that elective, no. (laughs) Okay, thanks. And this again is Bria Barthel talking with Ian Houck. Head of Adult Services and Reference Services at Troy Public Library's main branch at 102nd Street. And Ian, if people want more information, uh, where do they go? They can go to our website at thetroylibrary.org, and we have a Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok page as well. And if people have reference questions, do they need to come to the library, or can they call in with questions? Uh, We accept walk-ins, phone calls, and uh, emails. So phone calls can be sent to 518-274-7071. And you can email us at troyref at thetroylibrary.org. And can you repeat that telephone number, please? 518-274-7071. Okay. Thanks. And again, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks, Ian. Great having you back. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And Bria brings us her book updates regularly, and her next segment will give us a good look at children's books. 
And we are joined now by Robert Cooper, Troy-based fine art photographer and creator of The Gallery, a vlog dedicated to highlighting photography as an art form. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. Is my NPR voice on? Your NPR voice. There we go. <laughs> this will be the first of many vi visits to our program. So you use camera as, as your art medium. What yes. was your path to discovering your love of photography? To be honest, my love for photography began unknowingly when I was young. I was very much into any kind of book that had photos, whether it's like, a, you know, Life magazine or Book of Sharks or Book of Reptiles or Animals or just World Travels and um, album covers. I used to love album covers. I'm old, so I remember when records were the thing, so... I always loved pictures, but I never at that time was like, hey, I should be a photographer. So, but I do know that my love of photography, <clears throat> excuse me, of photography became, began there. All right. So I know you a little bit. You love photo books. It's still yes. a very <clears throat> important part of who you are and how you communicate about photography. Yes. How, can you, what for you makes a photo book worth collecting um worth collecting definitely anything that's rare like i like to go to used bookstores and i find a lot of especially like african-american photography books are always rare for some reason but anything from the 70s and 80s you know you're not going to find it anywhere else and you got to snatch those up so i always get those kind of books but you know, just things that aren't the, the uh, there's a lot of artistic pho photography books out there with rare photographers. So if you find any of those, those are definitely worth having. But I don't really just collect them just because they're rare. I just collect them because I like the photos that are in there. So we all, or most people know Gordon Parks, but who's one African-American photographer who you think that listeners should know? And if they haven't heard the name, they should look it up. Um, definitely, uh, Kwame Brathwaite is one, um, the Kamoingi, anybody from the Kamoingi Photography Collective, which was a photo collective back in the sixties and seventies. It still of, exists. Yeah, it still exists. But, uh, yeah, definitely anybody from that collective and, um, African photographers, Sidu Kita, um, also, uh, what's the other one's name? There's another African photographer that I really, really like. Oh, so these are African, not African-American. Yeah, yeah. So I can't remember his name. but All right, so Hi. photo book talk in the future. Andrea, you have a question. Hi, I'm Andrea. Hi. Hi, um, Andrea. I have a question. How are you? Good to see you. I have a quick question. Go for um, it. I know that, you know, during a time we went from reflex to digital photography was a real blow to a lot of photographers. And I think you probably look like you may have had experience in that transition. Did you find that difficult? And did it, did you have to transition? And, or are you still using a reflex camera? Actually, I'm the opposite. I actually started out on digital. Oh. And recently, I've been shooting both film and digital. But it's, it's funny that you asked me that because I have a YouTube series called The Gallery. 
And I interviewed a photographer yesterday who's been around for about 50 years. I asked him the exact same question. I said, how did you manage the transition from film to digital? Because a lot of film photographers weren't able to make that transition. So, No, it was painful. And also, you know, people, gosh, back so long ago, used dark rooms. Yeah. Mm, and I love dark rooms. That wasn't was that was that part of any of your work or no? I I, just... I sent mine to McGreevy's. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. But you shoot with both. So when do you shoot with digital, and when do you shoot with analog? Definitely shoot digital with paid work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I try to I try to walk around with a camera. Every day, every time I'm out and about, I have a camera in my hand. And most of the times I have a film camera. So, But if it's during the, the nighttime, then it's more difficult because of the, the, the speed of the film or whatever. So I will probably have a digital camera if I'm walking around at night. Mm, have you tried pushing exposure? That could be real fun. I have, but I have to know in advance that I... <laughs> That's right. You kind of have to commit to the whole role. (laughs) So we mentioned you vlogged the gallery in the introduction. It began in February 2020. Mm -hmm. So the first uh, episode and then the third episode was already in the pandemic. So how did you envision the series and what was the evolution due to the unforeseen circumstances? (laughs) Well, it's funny to ask that because it started in February 2020 and my goal was to visit art galleries and also to interview other photographers. And after two shows, then the pandemic hit. (laughs) So I had to um, find creative ways to uh, keep my show going. So I did episodes where I talked about the photography books that I have. I did an episode where I talked about photography documentaries and another one where I talked about photography movies. And not movies about a photographer, but movies that have, like, photography characters or whatever. So I did that. And then after about five or so of those episodes, we were able to kind of, you know, get out a little bit. So I started going back to the galleries and started interviewing other photographers. But during that pandemic where we were inside, I had to get creative. And you are now back to photographing photographers who are some notable people who this vlog has given you access to um the most famous one i guess is um uh what's his name jamel shabazz Mm -hmm. yeah i interviewed him which was an honor and of course um buford smith who was uh from the kamoingi he's he's in it now oh he's in the new generation but the original members Buford Smith is one of the original members from back in the 60s and 70s. And I interviewed some photographers on my first show who were hip-hop photographers who had photos in that book, Contact High. So, yeah. The book you're referencing is the first episode, the uh, exhibition that was the launch of the book. Yes. And so do you ever have any suggestions for those of us who just simply have our mini cameras here, um, do you have any ideas for us? Any hints on how we can maybe make better use of that? I say shoot whatever you feel. I'm not one of those snobby 
photographers who's like, you know, you got to have a camera, <laughs> not a phone. And, you know, and that's not a photo. And no, you shoot whatever you like, whatever is interesting to you, you capture it. And, you know, that's that's the, the best way to utilize any device that you have. I always say a good photographer is a good photographer no matter what they're shooting with. Mm-hmm. Oh, so. Very good. Very good. So we only have a minute left, but how has photography and the camera allowed you to see the world differently without the camera? Um, it's allowed me to, especially when I'm doing events in concert, it allows me to, you know, utilize visual tools so that if you're not there at the concert, or if you're not at that event, you know exactly the feeling that's going on there. You know it's a joyful event. You know that the uh, musician on stage is giving his best performance. And, you know, that's how it's allowed me to, you know, show and highlight music and, you know, parties to people who aren't there or who have no intentions of being there who can't get there. So... Robert Cooper, this has been such a pleasure. Oh, did you have a quick? Just a really quick question, because something (laughs) I found discovered is that when you put a camera in front of your face and you observe something through the lens, it removes you from the event or from the experience. How do you keep yourself connected? Well, usually when I'm at a concert, it's it's for artists that I am pretty familiar with, so... I pretty much know their their every move. Like, for instance, there's this uh, dancehall artist named Spice, and she has a song, and I know at a certain point of that song, she's going to kick her leg up. <laughs> and that's exactly when I've captured it, is when she got the leg all high up in the air. So, yeah, you pretty much know what to expect if you are familiar with these artists. Fantastic. Thank you. You are welcome. Now I'm going to look through your Instagram to see if I can find that photo. She made me take it down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for the other photos from Robert Cooper, the handle is rcooperphotography on Instagram. Thank you so much for coming on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. Thanks to all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Uh, contributors yes. to today's program are Mark Dunley, Bria Barthel, and my lovely co-host, Andrea Cunliffe. And yours, uh, your yes. wonderful engineer, Sina Basila Hickey. We <laughs> want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, on Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. Or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. So until next time, folks, thanks for listening.